through a lot of different disasters, not only in California, but around the country, uh, such as Oklahoma City in 1995, the Nairobi bombing and support of 9-11 and, and our own floods and our own emergencies. But I will tell you that, to me, at the end of the day, what's really made things come together is just watching the business that I'm in evolve over and over and over. We constantly, much like the news business, have to remake how we're doing it, how we're meeting those challenges, coming up with new technologies, new ways of adjusting to meet the needs for the next go around. And that's what's been really neat about it. There are some people who run instinctively to danger. May not be most of us, but we're glad these people actually exist. One of these people, a man known as Chief Z, Kim Zagaris, has spent his lifetime battling fires and disasters in California. On Directions with me, Stan Grant, you'll find out how the increased use of GIS technology is creating more consistent disaster warning systems. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is supporting the world's most progressive leaders, visit esriaustralia.com.au slash trailblaze. Chief Kim Zagaris was California's Fire Chief of the Year, someone who's been involved in every major and catastrophic emergency in California over 42 years of service. But it's no longer enough to have the best hoses, the most expensive fire trucks, or the best trained disaster response teams. Nowadays, leaders in emergency services need to share data and insights in real time so a potential disaster is mitigated or so a response can be swift. How exactly can you prepare for the unknown what are the tools at our disposal which can help predict the threats and inform how we respond, and in particular, to respond rapidly in a chaotic situation? Chief Cigaris, welcome to Directions. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. You've described yourself, and I, I can relate to this, as an adrenaline junkie. Is that what is required to do what you've done? I don't know if it's necessarily adrenaline junkie, but... Uh, I think more than anything, it's a commitment, dedication to serve. Adrenaline does help. There is something, isn't it? There is something, though, that most people faced with danger do the logical thing, and that is to run the other way. You are trained to do the opposite, but there must be something in you as well that attracts you to that. I think it's uh, there's excitement, there's challenge, there's opportunities Man against nature. I spent a lot of time as a reporter covering danger zones around the world, war zones around the world, and we do the same thing. If, if we hear gunfire, we run to the gunfire. We need to be there to do it. But of course, you know, people ask me that question, why do you do it? And I say, well, yes, it's, it's my job and it's important. But I always find in those circumstances, you go into, into work mode, you fall back to your training. You do. You fall back in the training. It's those early years that bring you to where you're at later in life, but you stay very focused on uh, the threats that's in front of you and how to mitigate those and get people out of harm's way. What was it that drew you to this career? You know, I, I tell folks, I said, uh, i just gotten out of the, the Army. I was in the tanks. I was in armor, and mm. uh, I was uh, working in a mill 
on a planer where uh, you take green lumber and stack it back on the deck and so it can be shipped out. And I was coming home one night after closing the bar, the pub, and uh, happened to see a big low uh, as I came up over the hill. And boy, it was a big fire in a commercial structure. I pulled in and fire engine was just pulling in and firefighters were screaming, grab the hose. And next thing is I found myself at the end of the hose. And a while later, another firefighter came in and he says, get the hell off this line. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought to myself as I, as I went back to my apartment, I said, that was pretty exciting. By the next day, I uh, was uh, calling out at the community college, looking into uh, fire science. Mm. And uh, I put my GI bill to use and uh, found myself entering the fire service. Yes. Yeah, so fire. you are the person that absolutely runs toward the fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. And from the military to this as well. So, again, attraction to the military. There, There is a great sense of service, but there's also that desire, I suppose. Is, is excitement part of that attraction? Like I said before, it's part of the uh, attraction, but also duty to serve. And, you know, it's very rewarding. To, fire service is very paramilitary, just like the military is in a lot of ways. But, you know, you work as a team with a, with a group of people. And uh, you live with them, you grow up with them. It's it's definitely a different a different profession and a very exciting one, and provides challenges and opportunities. You have good days and bad. I often tell people that it was. Uh, they said, "Boy, being the fire chief." I said, ah, "I tell you what." I said, "My worst day in the field was better than my best day being the fire chief." Yeah. And uh, but you know, at the end of the day, my heart was always uh, always out there on the line where the rubber meets the road, and the firefighters do the work each and every day. <laughs> it's the same. I, I have exactly the same feeling as a as a reporter. The normal progression and the progression in your career is, you know, you spend your time in the field, you get onto the anchor desk, and that's seen as being sort of upwards and onwards. But when I look at the story, when I see the big event, I can feel that surge, that desire to be there. And it's not just that, you know, I want to be there. I want to do a good job and I want to work with the people who are committed to doing a good job. How much of that was was your motivation? I'll tell you this, it's uh, nothing better than the work you do with them each and every day. But I tell people, I thought I'd be in the field my whole career. And at one point, you know, I was told, hey, you need to promote. And I said, I'm, being, I'm happy being an assistant chief. Oh no, you really need to step up and be the fire chief. And I said, you know, I'll be a cut and pay. And I said, I just love going to emergencies with my hair on fire. I said, nah. Well, they kept twisting my arm, and finally they talked me into taking the job a couple of weeks later. And I often tell people, I still remember the day they, they sent out the announcement that uh, I was going to be the state fire and rescue chief. And I tell people, I go, it was like the announcement went out, and I could almost hear outside the window, oh, my God, what were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> oh, because I've been a rubble rouser and, uh, you know, always uh, looking for constant change and trying to make things different. And uh very outspoken and not your usual everyday fire chief, I would tend to tell you. And then, you know, that was um, 17 years later, I retired out as a fire chief. And, you know, just a, a very different time of, of that. And like I said, that entire time, I'd always wished I'd stayed stayed back out on the, out on the line. But uh, during that 17 years as a fire chief was able to accomplish quite a bit. You always think you can get more done and you realize later in life that, uh, you, know, you get done what you can, given given the politics, given the circumstances, given your budget, a number of situations, but still had a very good run, a very good success. 
I had a chuckle when you described yourself as a rabble rouser because I don't want to give away any secrets here, but uh, you did say once that you'd been suspended a couple of times. That's true. I always tell people, I said, it's not a big thing. I said, I've had 30 days off. It isn't though they haven't tried to fire me more than once in my career, but I've survived them all. It made me a better person, made me a better opportunity to realize, you know, that uh, throughout my career, you know, I had a lot of good influences on me and other folks who wanted just to see things changed. How does that shape your leadership? You've been from the guy who picks up a hose when you're not even in the fire service to the rabble rouser, to the person who wants to speak their mind, the person who's reluctant to take on that mantle of leadership and then finds them that in leadership anyway. At the end of the day, I've, I've worked with a lot of people that uh, were afraid to speak up or didn't want to speak up for a number of reasons. I've always never had that problem. I don't mind speaking up. I don't mind questioning things or challenging items. You want to be sensitive of uh, people's feelings, but at the end of the day, we have a job to do. We need to make things work. We in emergency services always criticize ourselves probably more than anybody when we do after actions. You know, the idea is to make things better than when we found them and really find out how we can do things better the next time. And the only way we can do that is being honest up front and uh, not being afraid to say what needs to be said. Um, I think the harder part is probably when you move up in the ranks and, uh, and the politics get uh, a little <laughs> stickier and we're dealing with, you know, state government or uh, national government makes things more interesting uh, as we work our way up in those things we need to, need to say or do to, to get ahead. You talk about government. You were dealing with the Terminator. <laughs> your, your boss for a period was Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've had some great conversations over my time with the governor, and we'd get together every spring and talk about how fire season was looking, what we thought, where we would be. And I tell you, more than once in our spring meeting, he says, you'll take care of the fires, we'll take care of the money. <laughs> That's a good deal. <laughs> at the end of the fiscal year, you know, the bean counters would, would come in, and I always kind of laugh. they come in and ban at the wounded after the battle. And, and I have to remind him, I said, I know you weren't in our meeting in spring, but the governor said, we take care of the fires. You'll take care of the money. And uh, can you think we're going to pay for this? I said, I don't know. I'll put it on my expense account. And they never had a sense of humor for people <laughs> in fiscal. One of the things that you've said is that when you became the chief, you actually found as well that you didn't have the freedom that you thought you might had. You're in a position to make decisions, but you're not necessarily free to make those decisions. You know, at the end of the day, we all have bosses. Even at an upper level of state government, you realize that to get some things done, you've got to maneuver and you've got to adjust and you've got to try to appease or you've got to sell your program to people in the Department of Finance and then with the legislative support staff and then ultimately with the legislators and then in hearings. And it's always kind of funny when I used to go before the legislature, I'd always bring my laptop computer and I'd flop it open in the, in the meeting and on it had a sticker that a friend of mine gave me from a Phoenix Fire Department. <laughs> And it says, be nice. And, you know, you, you sit down at the table and you look up at the uh, at the elected officials. And they say, is that for us, chief? And I said, well, it's surely not for me. And I get them to laugh. And, you know, most people don't survive in a state job at my level for more than a couple of years, let alone 17. So I was able to intermix with a lot of different people and do some things, which end up making a big success. I had a great support of the California Fire Service and a lot of legislators and the bosses I worked for. From that side, it really worked out extremely well as you maneuver. Not everybody you meet, you're going to make your friends. Some people you're going to meet, uh, you're going to make an enemy out of one way or another because you're getting something that they're not or they just don't like what you're doing or how you're doing it. 
I said before, it, over that 40-plus year career, you've been involved in every major catastrophe, whether it be fires, but also things like 9-11. What stands out for you? You know, a lot of different things stand out. I've been through a lot of different disasters, not only in California, but around the country, such as Oklahoma City in 1995, the Mirabilly bombing and the support of 9-11 and, and our own floods and our own emergencies. Uh, Alaska Flight 261 went off the coast mm. of uh, Ventura into the water and no survivors, and you know, except it's in a lot of different things. But I will tell you that, to me, what's really made things come together is just watching the business that I'm in evolve over and over and over. We constantly, much like the news business, have to remake how we're doing it, how we're meeting those challenges, coming up with new technologies, new ways of adjusting to meet the needs for the next go around. And I've met people all across this country. I've been fortunate enough to uh, be in the White House, be in Congress, the Senate in the U.S., and traveled the number of uh, international countries and talked about the state of California and the U.S. in a lot of different ways, just talking about how we meet our challenges and work on technology. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, when you talk about new technologies as well, it puts me in mind of something that you've also spoken about, and that is the need for mitigation before you actually get to the disaster. What can be done to head that off? Is there still not enough done on mitigation? Still not enough. And I would tell you that, unfortunately, at least in the U.S., we're still spending more on the response side of the house than we are in mitigation. In fact, the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency says for every dollar we spend on mitigation, we can save $6 on the response side down the road, and we're nowhere near where we need to be. But I will tell you that, like no time ever before, technology is really here. It's how we harvest it, how we use it and how we manage it to where we're going and where we want to get to around the corner is what's really key in today's day and age. Mm. And when you talk about technology, of course, that GIS technology is important and that mapping to be able to use that technology to uh, collect data, to be able to, to see in advance what you may be dealing with. What are the opportunities there? They're great. And I, I would tell you, you know, I get to work with um, a lot of great people, but uh, We've been working with the program uh, at the International Fire Chiefs called NMAS, National Mutual Aid System, that's actually looking at real-time vehicle location or where resources are and how quickly we'll get to get them to an incident and matching up those resources with a database and in a number of different areas and how we share the notifications to move resources. So it better enables us not only to have better situational awareness, but be able to predict where things are and where they're going to be so we can better allocate resources and move those. Given what you've outlined and just the sheer numbers of it all, you spend a dollar on mitigation, you save $6 on response. It surprises me that there hasn't been a greater uptake of, of utilizing these technologies. Why is that? For one, it's redirecting dollars, uh, additional dollars, because you surely want to take away from response dollars now. But it's actually getting those elected officials to put more money into that side of the house. We're lagging behind in capability, you know, to meet the responses. So it's tough. And I think uh, it's going to take a strong commitment out of our leaders and also out of our elected officials to push them to where we need to get to. And uh, sometimes break away from 
what is easy and something we're comfortable with versus going towards an area that we may not be as comfortable with. And that's what leadership really is about. And listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Chief Z's technology-led approach to managing disasters, you can jump onto our website. That's directionspodcast.com.au. There's a heap of great resources to get you thinking about how you might use technology when it comes to your next crisis. And that really does open up our hypothetical because it touches on so many of these issues, Chief Z. Let me run through the outline for you. So you're now parachuted into the middle of a firestorm, both a real fire and also the politics of of dealing with a fire. You're a newly appointed Australian Emergency Services Commissioner. Your remit that covers one state, but of course these fires are going to cross over to other borders. It's devastating for local communities, for wildlife, significant damage. Uh, You're also, of course, dealing with the politics of this moment as well. There are areas of cultural significance, there are ecologically important areas, there are farming districts, so there are different political actors at play as well. What's your first response as someone who has been brought in, you're newly appointed, you're dealing with an emergency right now, what do you bring from your experience and your leadership immediately in setting your priorities? You know, I I immediately look at what the overall situational analysis is, and that's talking both with your staff and those folks who appointed you into that uh, office. Doesn't really matter where you're at, you know, protection of life, property, and the environment, and our culture is really significant. I always look at it in that cut of the pie. Some days, and I, I get to talk to a lot of leaders around around the country and sometimes around the world, but if you're more worried about keeping your job than doing your job, you're probably going to fail to start with. At the end of that day, if you're not willing to do what's right, put your job on the line, then maybe you're not going to survive it. And you're dealing, of course, with a fast-moving situation, a deeply political situation, and one where people are scared and they're angry. The media is demanding answers as well. In these circumstances, people have already turned on political leaders. The Prime Minister and the State Leader, the State Premier, have visited some of the areas and people have screamed at them that they have not done enough and that they weren't prepared for this and they've left them at the mercy of this fire. Now the media ask you that question. Who are you here to serve? Are you here to serve the people or the politics? Have politicians let us down? What's your answer? I'm actually here to serve the the people and uh, the politicians or who are elected by them. I'm not here to appease, really, the politicians. I'm here to give them answers, but I'm really here to give answers to the public, talk about what worked, what didn't work. I'm here to actually tell the public, be more transparent. And I think leaders as a whole, more they can talk about those situations and decisions they're making at the time, will go a long ways in, in, in actually the public understanding what we have to deal with. I will tell you that leadership in this particular end means being able to answer those things I said before to the public, being honest. We may not have the answers we're working on. We'll get back to you. I also believe that the public sometimes has a higher expectation of government than there really is. And I generally tell people here in the States, here in California, 
we don't have enough fire engines to put in everybody's driveway. Just don't have that capability. That's part of the discussion that needs to take place early on and about working together from both the response from government as well as response of people's own personal responsibilities to protect their families, to protect their property, to be prepared, to respond and evacuate when we need them to do those things. And I think, again, that uh, people look to government to solve all their problems, and that's really not what government is going to always be able to do. And I think that we have limitations in, in our abilities. We have to manage those expectations of both the politicians and the public when you serve in these leadership roles. Government has money, it has resources, and it has to make choices. Now, I'm a journalist who's done some background digging in this, and I've published a story on this day that says, in the months leading up to this fire, you had made a recommendation to government that they invest in geospatial technology, in some mapping that could have identified where the risks were. And they said to you, no, we don't have the money for that. You said to them, this decision will cost lives. And they said, well, we're going to go ahead with it anyway. I've published this story on this day and people are really angry. I now come to you and I say to you this question. Do these politicians have blood on their hands? What's your answer? I would tell you that the uh, politicians had to make some decisions at the end of the day. They probably believe they made the right decisions. I would probably tell them would be fighting for, again, an investment in a geotechnology. So we hopefully do not continue to repeat the past problems and disasters that we've now come to experience. But now you're dealing with two issues. You've criticized the government. You've agreed that they made the wrong decision. And you're also dealing with this fast-moving fire. It's a political firestorm and it's a real fire. How do you as a leader manage both of those things? You already put yourself out there that, hey, geotechnology is where we need to be and this will cost lives. You're going to look pretty bad if at the end of the day, now you're going to flip-flop on what you actually said. You either meant it or you didn't mean it. And again, I said earlier, if you're not willing to go down with the ship, for what you actually put on the table, then shame on you. You have to be comfortable enough in your own skin and the job that you're doing and stand up and fight for it. If I made a statement, I've got to live with it. And unless I find myself to be wrong or incorrect. And in this moment, you become a people's hero. You're seen as standing up. You're not only dealing with the fire, but you're standing up to politicians as well when people are demanding real answers. You're accountable. You are the face of this response to this disaster. Do opportunities like this, when you have that moment, do you seize those opportunities and say, here is the time to make a difference? Do you turn the crisis into an opportunity to make sure that coming out of this, the right decisions are made. You can surely work back towards that direction. Uh, again, politicians are not going to be happy with you. But if you're going to be true to what you committed to, you're going to try to make this thing work for the future. You've got to be true to the people you serve. You took an oath, and it wasn't an oath to be politically correct. It was an oath to protect and serve. If you stand by your commitment, you will try to work through it. Yeah, you're going to upset some politicians. And then I don't think it's a question about being a hero to the public. I think it's about being responsible and doing your job and standing by your guns 
if you've got the data to support where you're at. This hypothetical has been great because it's revealed so much of who you are. All the things that we talked about before the hypothetical, you're the guy who sees smoke and runs to it and grabs a hose and and digs in, even though you're not yet even in the fire service. You're the rabble rouser. You're the guy who gets suspended. You're the guy who stands up for, for what you believe is right. And you're the guy who's prepared to speak truth to power. And in every question that I asked you there, you did not hesitate. There was not a moment where you looked for a diplomatic answer. You absolutely took all of that on. And, and it brings me to this, I suppose, the idea of authenticity. How important is that to you, that idea of authenticity? You are who you are. You learn how to, how to manage, but fundamentally, you are who you are, and that's why you are there. And it's hard to change who you've become at this point in your life. And you shouldn't, right? If you're a leader, you probably shouldn't. I would tell you that who I am is actually a number of people that have mentored me through my career and that I've admired, as well as several people who wouldn't want to be them and didn't like working for them. We're collaboration of, uh, of those things in time. And I, I always tell people that I said, look, We're about communication, coordination, and collaboration in today's day and age. And we can get more done by getting along than by fighting. In fact, fighting drains more resources and provides more negativity. What we need in today's day is that communication and collaboration, that coordination, to get those things done that the public expects us to do. They call it an emergency. They want service. They want it now. And to finish up on, on the idea of leadership, as someone who's been a leader and who has worked from the ground up, who do you look to? If, you were, if the qualities you were looking for, for someone who would be your successor or a young person that you could identify as having leadership qualities, what would you look for? I look for individuals that can be articulate, honest, forthcoming, people with a vision. I'm looking for folks that are hard workers, committed, dedicated, are willing to put it all on the line, um, including their job, to do what's right. And when you say putting it all on the line, that can come at a cost, can't it? I mean, the your job's been all-consuming, uh, and you've seen some terrible things. But balancing that with being a human, being a person, having a family, having a life, how do you do that and still be a good leader? and still put it all on the line. Has that been a learning curve for you? You know, whether you're a leader of an organization or you're the president of a small company or a large company, you make decisions in life, what you're willing to accept and not accept, sometimes they're at a personal cost. It's how you deal with them, how you recover from them, how you move on from all these decisions that you make. I don't see that there's an easy road because at the end of the day, more people are going to take shots or people are going to question your leadership. But if not you, then who? Mm. I never wanted to be a fire chief. I never thought I'd be the fire chief, let alone did I think I would last 17 years as fire chief. But I will tell you this, it's been both rewarding and heartbreaking at different times. And I take the good with the bad. I don't know that I would change my life. If I change anything, I wish I had more time to get back to my family. Mm. But at the end of the day, my son, who just turned 42 today, following in my footsteps, he's a uh, Firefighter, engineer in Novato, uh, just north of San Francisco and Marin County, who is going to be a fire captain on 
January 1. And can't tell you how proud I am of that. You know, he's different than me, but he's smarter than me in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'll just get a final thought from you because part of leadership is knowing when to say it's over, when you're done, when you feel as if you've given everything and you're looking for that succession. How do you know? How do you approach that decision. We've talked about leadership from the early stages to the the middle stages to periods of crisis, but that managing that transition when you believe that it's time for that change and to walk away, very difficult. What's your advice to people coming up to making that critical decision? Because that's a leadership decision too. I'm one of those people who went past the point I could have retired early and enjoyed things and stayed stayed longer to hopefully get more accomplished. But at the end of the day, you can never accomplish everything that you probably set out to do. It just, I don't think it's possible in government. But I always believed it was better to go out on top than it was to go out during a crisis when somebody else was determining your exit. And I've stayed long enough, had enough battles. I knew I'd stayed longer than I planned. Sometimes I miss not being in the slot, but most days I don't. And I surely don't miss the late night calls and my wife's, you know, going, uh, and uh, having to grab my phone and go downstairs uh, and take the calls and I'd interrupt the family. So everybody know, should know when they're, when's a good time to go, but uh, that's how I did it. You know, the really sad thing about this is that these conversations have to come to an end. I could just talk to you um, all day, it's such a rich life and so much wisdom, and, and I've loved talking to someone who can just call it as it is. It's a fantastic quality uh, of leadership and certainly the sort of leaders I've always responded to. Chief Z, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Directions. Thank you for being so uh, generous with your time. And I'm sure I join in everyone in saying thank you for your service as well to, to your country and your people. Thank you. I look forward to continuing working with uh, my colleagues in Australia. Chief Kim Zagaris. And for more about his work responding to disasters, visit directionspodcast.com.au. On the next episode, Brian Bourmet is on a mission to democratise data. The digital transformation expert believes multinational companies can create greater efficiency, accuracy of insight, and better returns if they share data. And he's done just that at BP for 70,000 employees. We had a saying in the company, for any large program, it's people, process, and technology. And it was in that order on purpose. People first, then you bring in the process necessary, and the technology is really just a supporting element. If you get the people to understand how they're adding value to the business, you show them how they're driving some of that bottom line impact, how they're helping the business solve problems, people will follow. We've used a lot of these core technologies literally for decades. We were some of the first industry to really get into geographic technology, but to use it at this scale, this was new. That's the next episode of Directions. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Stan Grant, and Chief Kim Zagaris. Sound engineered by Neely Media and Deadset Studios, with editing support from Kim Douglas and Sydney Podcast Studios. Artwork by Superscript, and our executive producers are Alicia Kuparitsis and Raquel Jackson. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating, leave a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also download 
a free trial of Esri software. Check out our show notes and access other resources at directionspodcast.com.au. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Esri Australia, its subsidiaries or partners. Hypothetical scenarios presented as part of this episode are purely fictional, and while they may draw on current issues, they do not depict the actions, values or beliefs of any specific individual and or organisation. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.